<laughs> well, good morning, everyone. Glad to see you all this morning. It's a much prettier day than it was last week. Glad that we are all together again. We are in the middle of the plays, and I'm looking forward to it today. So just a quick reminder for those of you who have are relatively new, that we've got all these lessons backed up on our podcast and also on our website, stmichael.org slash rbs, and we would love for you to go back and listen at your leisure. And if you've ever got questions about anything that we did in the past, then please know we are happy to go over those questions and address them here. So that's all I've got. Let's open with a prayer and we'll get started. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the beauty of this day, for the gift of family and friends and love that surrounds us. May we put down those things which worry us and stress us and make space for your spirit to fill us, that as your spirit fills us up, we can be transformed and given grace to become the people you've created us to be, that as we go from this place, as we go from this study, we are able to be changed and to be your hands and feet of love in the world. I pray for all those we hold in our hearts, those we love and see no longer, those especially who need your healing touch today. May they be uplifted by your spirit. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We just got two scopes in our lesson today, two sections of today's lesson. The first is going to be the plagues. We're going to do plagues four through six. And then we're going to talk about Moses as Pharaoh's prophet. And so we're going to just jump right in with the plagues. So turn in your Bibles to chapter eight. We're going to start with verse 20. Chapter eight, verse 20. Here we go. The Lord said to Moses, rise early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go so that they may worship me. For if you will not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you, your officials and your people and into your houses and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies. So also the land where they live. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people live, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am Lord and, and sorry, that I am the Lord of this land. Thus I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign shall appear tomorrow. The Lord did so, and great swarms of flies came into the house of Pharaoh and into his officials' houses. In all of Egypt, the land was ruined because of the flies. We'll stop there. So this fourth plague is described as flies. And the flies, yes, are horrible. But this plague is about more than just flies. In the Hebrew, we see that the word for flies really just means kind of flying bugs and has been translated as flies because I suppose that just gives us more of an image in our mind. But this fly plague is the first plague to do a few things. First, this is the first plague that happens directly from God. Up to now, the plagues have been sort of intermediary with Moses. So if you remember the first three plagues, Moses was told to do a thing. Whether he raised his staff, he touched the staff, he touched the ground, Moses had to do something in order to cause the plague to come down in Egypt. 
Here in plague number four, we see a slight pivot and shift. This plague seems to come directly from God. And it's also the moment when God makes very clear that the people are different. The Egyptians are different from the Israelites over in Goshen. And when God brings this plague upon the Egyptians, God is intending to protect the Israelites from the plague. And we can assume as we go that the Israelites have been mostly protected from all of this anyway, but this is the moment when that is made explicit and very clear. The Israelites are protected. Now, I cannot help this, but last week, there was one of our regular RBS members brought me something fun that I had to share with you. These are plague finger puppets. <laughs> right? And I have never in my life seen blood finger puppet. And it keeps going. We have frogs, we have lice, which was probably the gnats, and then we've got pestilence. That is the one we have right now. This is a child's finger puppet that says pestilence on the back. Is that not the best? I just, I cannot stand this. I think this is wonderful. Um, and it goes on and on with the animals, and we're going to get to boils, and I can't wait to show you the way to so in case you have children in your life and you would like to scare them and keep them from sleeping, I've got finger puppets up here that you can borrow. This fourth plague is really kind of in the middle of the plague sequence. And we know that there are 10 plagues, but not all plagues are treated equally in scripture. The first couple plagues are really given a lot of weight. There is a lot of story to those plagues. And then of course the last plague in particular is given a lot of time because in that 10th plague, we see the development of some Jewish identity. When you are in, kind of in the middle, plagues three, four, five, six, that, those kind of plagues, they kind of skip through pretty quickly. And so I want to read through them, but I also know that there's not a huge amount of things we can say about these plagues. So we're going to just press on. We're going to do plagues five and six, and then we're going to talk about plagues in general for a few minutes. And so we've hit the flies. Let's go on with plague number five. This begins right at the start of chapter nine. So skip ahead to the beginning of chapter nine. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go so that they may worship me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, the hand of the Lord will strike with a deadly pestilence your livestock in the field the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing shall die of all that belongs to the Israelites. The Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And on the next day the Lord did so. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but of the livestock of the Israelites not one died. Pharaoh inquired and found that none of the livestock of the Israelites was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he would not let the people go. So we'll pause there. This is the second consecutive plague that comes straight from God alone, and we see almost identical structure here. God says directly to Pharaoh, you will have this plague come upon you if you don't let my people go. And this plague will not hurt the Israelites. Again, that is explicitly noted here, that the Israelites are separated from the Egyptians. Pharaoh ignores it. The livestock of the Egyptians are killed. This time, Pharaoh verifies 
that the livestock of the Israelites are not killed. And yet, the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. At this point, I hope you're wondering, perhaps, where the specificity of the plagues are coming from. I remember the first time I really learned about these plagues, I kind of wondered, why flies? Why? I mean, killing the livestock, that kind of sounds bad. Poisoning the water, that sounds pretty bad. But things like flies, frogs, I mean, it's annoying. But is that really the great tragedy that is going to convince Pharaoh to let the people go? And so I started digging around in this before today's lesson, and there are some scholars who have put forward that part of the idea of the plagues in Exodus is to actually undo and undermine specific Egyptian gods. That with each plague, there is actually a very pointed god in Egypt that is being undermined. As if, one by one by one, Yahweh, the God, is taking out one Egyptian god at a time with each of these plagues. I find that very fascinating. At some point, if you are interested, we can actually try to show which god in Egypt is which. I think the connections are sometimes a little loose, but we do certainly know things like when the sun is darkened later on, that's raw, right? I mean, the sun god of Egypt, just about the most powerful person, is the god of the sun. The sun gets darkened, and it is not difficult to understand that Egypt would have, at some point, made the connection that Yahweh is undermining their primary principal god. Let's see. Let's keep going, and we'll just finish off with plague number six. Look at verse eight. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw it in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust all over the land of Egypt, and shall cause festering boils on humans and animals throughout the whole land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and it caused festering boils on humans and animals. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils afflicted the magicians as well as the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So now with this sixth plague, we step back into a structure that is a bit like the first few, where God's plague comes through an action taken by Moses. This time Moses and Aaron both go get some soot from the kiln, but it's Moses who takes action, throws that soot up into the air. And it is that action that triggers the plague that impacts all of Egypt, even the magicians themselves. Now, I know you've been waiting for this. Can you see this? Is that not horrible? Oh, I mean, it's a pink doll with red spots. It's just it's gross. Um, and just in case you're wondering, it says boils on the back. See, I know y'all have some toddlers who love to use these. This is a plague that now goes beyond inconvenience or hardship. It is personal, right? Before, when you couldn't use water, that's, that's a hardship. When the animals died, that's a hardship. 
Now, when you have know, flies and the gnats and the frogs and that sort of stuff, it's all gross. But in a sense, it is not this. Bodies covered in boils. Oh, I mean, I hope that feel, can you feel that? It's just, it's horrible. This is a plague that is a tragedy that affects everybody. And even if the earlier plagues had been an inconvenience or gross, now as we get to plague number six, we are beginning to cross a line where they are becoming more and more difficult for the people to accept. And even though it's not really noted in scripture, part of the arc of this story I do think has to do with the way in which the people themselves, the Egyptians themselves, would have been so negatively affected by these plagues that they would have begun crying out to Pharaoh, that they would have been, become asking Pharaoh to solve this problem. And what is the solution, if not to let the people go? There is an interesting question that we got last week that fits in about right now. This is again on the lack of historic evidence for the Israelites being in Egypt or for Moses, which I can tell has really kind of dug into all of you. Um, it says, was the writer of Exodus juxtaposing the situation that they were in as slaves in exile in Babylon by dramatizing the story of the bondage in Egypt? And I thought that was a very clever question. So a reminder that these stories were written about the time of the exile. And so they had been told, oral tradition, for sure, for centuries. People had told the story of Moses and told the story of the Exodus and told the story of coming into the Promised Land and more and more. But it wasn't until the exile that people started asking those questions, what do these stories mean? What does it mean to be God's chosen people? What have we done wrong that God has allowed us to be conquered by the Babylonians and so forth? It's in the exile that the people begin to write down all of these early stories, these five books of Moses that we have inherited as sort of the prehistory of the Israelite people were all written more or less at once in the exile. Now they weren't all written by the same person. They were written by different threads. And some of you have noted over the last couple years that there are different philosophies that went into telling these different stories. And ultimately what we get in the Bible are some representations of both of those philosophies. There, there are more than two, but two really land in the five books of Moses. That's why we have things like two creation stories. It's not because people were looking to confuse anyone. It's because there were two schools of thought that were trying to tell a particular story around the creation of the world. And both became valuable over time, and so both were retained in Genesis. I think it's very clever to consider why the Exodus story would have been told the way it was told so long after. Because when it comes down to it, why all the plagues? It seems mean. It seems cruel. And as the question I brought up a few times this season is that, God is, in a sense, creating a problem that then only God can solve, and the solution God uses is not only to cause a lot of pain to a lot of innocents, but ultimately to kill innocents in order for Pharaoh to let the people go. When God hardens Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh then refuses to let them go, and so the plagues get worse and worse. That's a theological issue for me. That's, that's a problem. 
But it's a good way to wrestle with this problem by asking, why would the story have been told this way? When we put ourselves in the period of the exile, and I should note, if the idea of the exile is relatively new to you, then I would encourage you to go back and listen to this lessons on Daniel, because we deal very clearly with what the exile is and the way that the people wrestle with the idea their identity in exile. And so we're not going to go into all that detail today, but if you're interested, Daniel, there's lessons in Daniel from last fall, um, would be great to go a little deeper. While the Israelites, the Jews, are in exile in Babylon, they begin to question how God could let this thing happen. It is very natural that they would then reach back into their history at a point in time when their people, the Israelites at the time, they were not Jewish yet when they were in Egypt, but the Israelites were in captivity again. So they're in captivity in Babylon, but they were also in captivity back in Egypt. And it's likely that they would have begun telling that story in a particular way that meant to give the people in exile hope. And so here we have a story that we read as being chronological, which is fine, that it's, I think it happened, that's fine. But someone told the story in a particular way. And I think as we go through these plagues, what I want you to keep in mind is that by telling the story this way, one of the highest goods of this story is communicating to the Jewish people that no matter what happens, even horrible things, God is not disconnected. God has not left you. God will at some point deliver you. It's that basic concept that gives rise with the prophets to the idea of Messiah, which is very important to us. The way that we understand Jesus is very much through this lens of a promise that God will not leave us and that God will deliver us. God will not only deliver us, but save us from what is hard scary, painful, and what is the sort of the scariest experience we have? Death. And so it makes very logical sense that as the Jews are in exile in Babylon, they begin to tell the story of their bondage in Egypt in a way that will provide the people in Babylon the hope they need to maintain their connection and their faithfulness to God, trusting that God will ultimately deliver them. And then from that idea, there is a more macro, global, cosmic application. The world is hard. Forget just Pharaoh in Egypt or Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, but the world is hard. The world is difficult. The world is painful. We experience the fear and the pain of death itself. So wouldn't God potentially save us even from that? And so the prophets begin to develop this idea of Messiah. And when people experienced Jesus of Nazareth, they began to believe that he might be the point at which God saves us from it all. Does that all make sense? What thoughts or questions do you have on that? Yes. 
Yes. What's the significance of the fact that God gives Moses these directives and then he hardens Pharaoh's heart? The question is, what's the significance of God giving Moses directives while also hardening Pharaoh's heart? Yeah. I, I That's what I struggle with most in this whole story. I understand the theological point of the story, which is the Israelites are chosen to do something special. The world is getting in the way. And so God comes and frees them from whatever the world has put in their way in order for them to do the thing that they were called to do. Okay, so in the big theological idea that makes sense. I would have much preferred that we get a couple plagues. Like how about the blood and the frogs and the flies and then we, we're good, right? Um, because they get bad. I mean, the boils are the boils are not okay. I mean, when you talk about not having enough water, okay, we can sort of conceive of what that looks like. When you talk about having just dead frogs all over your house. Like, okay, we can conceive of that. Now we're talking about boils that at the time, I mean, let's just, let's just be real. You can get an infection from something like this. And there are no Neosporin or Bactine or whatever back in Egypt. So the idea that you would just take an antibiotic for a skin infection that you get because you have boils, that's not a thing. And so even though it doesn't say it, how many people died from this? Certainly people died from this. Not only do they have boils now, but think about all of the nasty stuff that precedes the boils. The flies, the gnats, the frogs. I mean, this the place is dirty. It's like a dumpster fire in Egypt right now. And then on top of that, boils. So how many people are getting infections and dying from this? And we're not even to the angel of death yet. So when you look at sort of the horror of the plagues. It's a lot. It is a horror. It's terrorism, really. And if you're in the winning group, then maybe you are tempted to say, whatever, right? I mean, serves you right. You did the wrong thing. But man, that's rough. And the way the story is told, I, I am, I can only begin to sympathize with the way it would feel to be a people in captivity in Babylon, feeling completely powerless, feeling as if the most important thing to you has been taken away from you. The entire story of Daniel is a story of a person who keeps their faith and is a, they try to execute him for it. I think this kind of story is so hard for us, where we are, who we are, where we live, at the time we live. You know, 21st century America right now, it's very difficult for us to sympathize with not having control, with being in bondage, with important things being taken away from us. Because we have, and we can be grateful for being in a place where our actual problems are not these kind of problems. No. And it doesn't mean we don't have problems, but it's not this. And this is horrible. I think your question gets at something I want you all to wrestle with on your own. I don't, I don't have an answer. I think this is important for you to 
squeeze and turn and twist on your own and figure out, how does this fit? We as Christians have inherited a tradition that existed for thousands, I'll say thousands of years, not, not well, whatever. Well, let's go with thousands of years. And part of our inheritance is wrestling with a God depicted in moments like this that seems ruthless and mean and hurtful, vengeful even. It makes good sense that in our own history, I mean, I laugh to myself when people point at other religions as being violent religions and how like Christianity is somehow this paragon of wonderful peacefulness. Um, when, I mean, obviously they did not pay any attention in history class when they were in school because the worst horrors of pretty much the last 2000 years with a few exceptions are coming out of people who anchor their identity in Christianity. So for us to say, I mean, that's history. So do not comment online about how that's not true. Um, so for us, we are part of a tradition that has been influenced by and inspired by an Old Testament identity of God that is much like this. And so when we talk about, I mean, remember back, it's happened many, many times, but there's an idea in Christianity called just war theory, which wrestles with the idea that Jesus was a pacifist. Jesus, I mean, again, do not argue with me. Jesus literally let himself die. So I don't know if there's more pacifist than that. So as a pacifist, it makes sense that we would then, if we're choosing to follow him and trying to be like him, that we would do that too, right? Well, obviously within Christian history, we have not done that. And so part of what has happened within theology is this melding of, this is super simple and it's a little shallow, but just go with me. Melding of the God of the Old Testament with the God of the New Testament. That's cheap. So we can talk about that another time if you want to. But that melding creates this idea that killing is not good. Okay. But sometimes killing is necessary. Sometimes it's a the end justifies the means kind of argument in short. And so as we think through, there are moments like, should we? have gone into Germany and stopped Hitler? Well, I think most of us would say, yeah, that's probably a worthwhile moment of violence. Okay, so why? Well, because we're protecting innocent people, right? So then you translate that all along and say, if we do something that's bad, but for a good reason, does that make the bad thing okay? This is heavy, and this is hard, and this is where we all begin to diverge in where we draw our line in the sand. Because it's, again, it's very cheap to hold up Hitler, right? Whoever does that. You hold up Hitler and everyone's like, yeah, okay, right. Um, because he's just a sort of like embodiment of evil. Then you look over here and you think, well, can we do certain things and kill for these purposes, and we easily say, no, that's that's not worth it. Think about even our own criminal justice system. When we argue, I mean, I will tell you myself, I do not think we should execute people. I think that's just, it is barbaric. 
But regardless, if we say certain things are not bad enough to be executed, okay, certain things are bad enough to receive execution, we've drawn a line in the sand. Where do you draw your line? Where something can be bad enough so that doing a bad thing is actually a good thing. That's messy. And everyone's gonna have a different opinion. I think what I want you all to wrestle with in this study of Exodus, especially in the plagues, is that kind of hit the ground moment. Because we can, if we keep our considerations in Egypt thousands of years ago about flies, that it's so far away from our experience that we can almost make it easy, too easy. It is not too easy because the ramifications of what we think of God actually doing this hit the ground in very real ways for us right now today. And if we're not going deeply there, then eh, we're just kind of having a nice Wednesday morning together, which, hey, there's nothing wrong with that. But I hope that we would dig a bit deeper. So having said all of that, does that kick off a thought or a response? Yeah. Well, you see, it little like bad things happen to us in our world, and more bad things happen to the more we harden our own hearts and say what we make to God. Hey, good. Okay, so the question was, could we understand this as bad things happen to us in our world, and the more bad things happen, the more our hearts are hardened? Yeah, I think it's exactly right. And in fact, part of the Moses as Pharaoh's prophet section, section two today, is sort of touching on this very directly. If your life has been good, it's so much easier to be good you've been taught good, if you've been loved and you've been wanted, it's so much easier for you to love and accept and include other people. If you've experienced pain, if you've been rejected, been hurt, been sick, been all these sort of things, it becomes harder to then turn around and be inclusive and be loving and be peaceful and be kind. Of course. That's part of what church is actually meant to do, is welcome us in and then challenge us to be better than we can be naturally. Some of us start way ahead of others, but it doesn't mean we don't have more way to go. And those of us who get a head start, I mean, I had, I'll speak for myself, I was raised in a household with parents who stayed married. My grandparents were both married. Everyone was loved and we were wanted and we were supported and we were, I mean, on and on and on, right? I'm poster child for good life. And I imagine many of you are too, but not everyone here. I guarantee you there are people sitting in these pews that was not their experience. And many times people try to salvage a bad experience by creating a good one. I know, I certainly know people who had horrible relationships with their parents, who became a parent and committed to not being that way with their children, you know, and on and on and on. Part of what we see here with the hardening of Pharaoh's heart can be understood as Pharaoh's own hardening. 
where it isn't an action taken by God against him, but instead acknowledging his humanity and his bad experiences contributing to his own hardening. And so I'll stop right there because we're actually going to get into more of that in just a few minutes. Any other thoughts? Yeah, yeah right along that same line, when you look at the, at the first nine plagues, um, about one-third of them just simply say, generally, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. About one-third of them say, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And about one-third of them say, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Yep. So it was, it, was a, it was that complex interrelational interplay between God and Pharaoh through this whole experience. So for those of you online, that's, it's, that's exactly right. Of the first nine plays, you have three of them where Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Three where God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then three, what did you say? His heart was hardened. It's just that in general his heart was hardened. So you've got actors leaning on Pharaoh's heart. And if you remember way back, way back, weeks ago, um, we were, I noted that heart in the ancient world is not what it is for us. So replace heart. Heart is what the text says, so we're going to read it that way. But when you hear that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, replace that with his gut. Heart, for us, is something emotional. It was not in the ancient world. In the ancient world, heart is what we would probably say gut. And so Pharaoh's gut was hardened. That's a different message because there's nothing emotional about your gut. In a sense, your gut is sort of like your spine. And by hardening yourself, it is less emotional and more almost um, principled or more uh, conceptual or thoughtful than it would be perhaps if we only left it as a part. <laughs> All right, any other thoughts or questions? Quick. Um, I disagree with you on the fact of having hard times and hardened heart. Okay. Because I believe if you have hard times and your faith carries you through it, then all you're doing is strengthening your faith and just getting better and better and better. And there's a joy in that. So I think so that to disagree about bad experiences hardening your heart, I think is true when you apply faith. So Without an anchor of faith, which if we talked about a faith life or a faith identity, with very few exceptions, if you look at the major world religions, it is really about transcendence. And so faith is anchored in this idea that it's not about us. There is something bigger than us. And the bigger than us can be described differently, can, might look differently, but the truth that the world is bigger, God is bigger, reality is bigger, whatever you want to say, whatever words are used, transcendence is the common denominator of all the major religions around the world. If you don't have that kind of identity that transcends your earthly experience, then I think hard experiences hardens hearts. But I do think what religion and faith, spirituality does for us is it keeps that from happening because it helps us to understand that what we experience is not all there is. When it comes to, and this is, I'm, I'm going to get here, I promise. When it comes to Pharaoh's heart being hardened, I imagine that there is a lot of egotism there. 
just straight psychological egotism. And what a good faith life does for us is it constantly checks our ego. And that's why it's hard for people who have a lot, who are powerful, who are comfortable to actually allow faith to get into them is because it's, there's a vulnerability there. It's an ego check. And when your ego is really healthy, it makes God, it gives God a much harder time to get inside you. But I do think that as you experience pain, you can, in a sense, be cracked open. And that's when God can get in you. But only if you're, in a sense, set up for that. If you're just kind of on your own, disconnected, eh, I, I will not say that God can't make it happen. Sorry. I, I, I heard. But once those cracks happen, if you're in a community that can support you and fill you up, absolutely, you get better for that. The best Christians I know are the ones who have experienced the greatest pain, 100%. Because they get it. I mean, in a sense, they get it, really get it. Um, in seminary, you all may not know this, in seminary, we, I, I can't say in all seminaries, but in my seminary, we actually studied recovery communities as a means of showing how in extreme brokenness, God can really impact in a deep way. And so even though I have not personally experienced that, the idea, I'm sure all of us know somebody who has, know many someones who have. What's the first step in recovery in a 12-step program? You cannot do it on your own. I mean, you acknowledge you are broken. And man, if that's not step one for being a Christian, I don't know what is. Because Jesus is not nice. Jesus is not to teach us polite. It's not like Jesus leads cotillion or something like that. What Jesus does is he heals us. Period. And if we don't know we're broken, we don't let him come in and heal us. And if Jesus stays on the outside, admiring how great we are, then we never quite get what God has offered. All right, any others? And a reminder online, if you have chats to share with us, then we can get those live too. All right, deep breath. There you go. Good. Let's go to section two. Moses is Pharaoh's prophet. I want to actually jump back into chapter eight. Chapter eight, verse 25. I'm going to read just a few verses here. Chapter 8, verse 25. <clears throat> just to put it into context, plague number four, the flies, has just been promised. Verse 25. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the sacrifices that we offer to the Lord our God are offensive to the Egyptians. If we offer in the sight of the Egyptian sacrifices, that we are offensive to them, will they not stone us? We must go a three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he commands us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, provided 
you do not go very far. Pray for me. Then Moses said, As soon as I leave you, I will pray to the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart tomorrow from Pharaoh, from his officials, and from his people. Only do not let Pharaoh again deal falsely by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked. He removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, his officials, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and would not let the people go. So in my career as a priest, we have shifted presidents of the United States three times. And each time that shift happens, I inevitably have people who come to me, sometimes many people come to me, to make sure that we pray for that president by name on Sunday mornings. And I have people come to me to tell me how they do not think we should pray for this president by name on Sunday mornings. Right? Both things happen. And it happens every time we show to president. We as Episcopalians, now I do acknowledge that in the Book of Common Prayer, there are a few of our structures that do not actually name the president, but many do. And so it is very common that in a normal Eucharist service, we would pray for the president by name. We pray for our leaders. Here we pray for president, governor, mayor. The reason we pray for those leaders is not because in any way we agree with or support policies, anything like that. That is not the point at all for praying for them. The point is that we need to pray for our leaders because they need prayer. When we do not like our leaders, that's when I want to pray more for them. Because what is the point of prayer? Now, we have done this many times over the years. We've talked about prayer. Prayer is for us something complex and powerful. And I want to address the idea of prayer, but within the context of what we see right here. Moses has gone back to Pharaoh's court. Moses is talking to Pharaoh regularly. Moses is speaking for God in ways that in a sense threaten Pharaoh in order to try and let the Israelites go. Moses is in this court not only a prophet in general, but a prophet for Pharaoh. There is a very interesting dynamic happening here. As Moses speaks and as Moses acts, Pharaoh is, in a sense, getting to know Moses. Now, we might say getting to know Moses again, assuming that perhaps they grew up together, but they are discovering one another, and there is a tension between them. Pharaoh has begun, in some small way, to perceive Moses as his prophet, not just prophet to speak to the people, but a prophet of God that is speaking to the king. And we see this model represented over and over again in scripture. In fact, next year when we study the kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, we're going to see just how important prophets of God are to the king. Here we get a little sniff of the way in which Pharaoh is beginning to be shaped by Moses' reality in his court. We see a very interesting moment right there in verse 28. After the flies have hit, and after Moses says, let us go worship, Pharaoh says, I will let you go sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, provided you do not go far away. 
pray for me. What? What an odd thing to say. And it is pretty unique in this entire story that we get this little moment where Pharaoh says to Moses, pray for me. Back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, what I see here is a moment when Pharaoh cracks just a little. And that crack allows sort of his spirit to reach out to Moses and, in other words, to reach out to God. When you go and do this, because obviously Yahweh is something, right? Now we're at the point in Plague 4 where the Egyptian magicians cannot keep up. And so they can't replicate or do anything to show that they are stronger than Yahweh. And so Pharaoh cracks just a little. And he wants Moses to pray for him. And Moses' response is, yeah, actually, I'll go pray for you right now. And I will pray for you to be relieved of this plague right now. Just don't go back on your word again. In that moment, not only has Pharaoh cracked open just a little, Moses' response to the leader of Egypt is he's going to pray for him right now. And so back to this notion that we pray for our leaders, whether we like them or not. Do you think Moses really liked Pharaoh? No. And do you think Moses was probably praying for Pharaoh anyway? Probably. I mean, I'd like to think so. But in this moment, Pharaoh asks for his prayers. And Moses doesn't say, well, make sure you let us go. Once we go, we're going to get out there and we're going to do it. There is nothing about Pharaoh doing anything that Moses agrees with. Moses immediately says, yes, I'll pray for you. It's a really beautiful moment in the middle of this mess where we actually see what I believe we see in the person of Jesus much later, right here, this kind of connected thread of God through Moses right now. This is the sort of thing Jesus would have done, right? If Pharaoh asked him to pray, he would have said, yes, I'll pray for you right now. Not if you do the thing I like, or if you make the decision I want, or if you act in a certain way. We're just going to pray. And yes, I'll pray for you. And so I want us to consider prayer just one more time. Maybe. I always get lots of questions when we tackle prayer of any kind. But I want to bring up the power of prayer to kind of close today's lesson. We did talk about how hard experiences help to shape us. When we experience hardship, we are formed and formed well if we are given that spiritual root. When we're in a community that can sustain us and support us and carry us. Without that, however, we can go the very wrong direction. Prayer is actually where we get the power to be shaped and formed in the right direction. Prayer is not that kind of cosmic algebra where if we get the right equation and we solve for x in the right way, we're going to get the answer we want. Prayer is not if we do it the right way in the right place at the right time with the right words, we're going to get the thing we're asking for. That is not what prayer is. And I know that is difficult for some to hear because we've all sort of grown up with ask for what you want so you can get what you want. And I remember when we first started talking about this years ago, someone said, well, should I be praying for my loved one who has cancer or who is dying if they're not going to actually be healed? I said, wait. God can do anything. 
the purpose of prayer is to affect us. When we pray, we are allowing the cracks of our experience to connect with God. In a sense, that ego that Pharaoh has cracked just a little. For us, we all have a good ego, and when we experience something hard, we crack just a little. And it's that prayer that goes through that crack and reaches back out to God who is reaching out for us. And so prayer is where our relationship with God anchors ourselves very deeply and truly so that the experiences we have actually shape us properly, continue to mold and create and shape us into the person God created us to be. If we do not regularly pray, we're not regularly reaching out to God. And if we're not regularly reaching out to God, then we're taking a chance on how the world hits us and molds us and moves us. And I have seen this so, so very recently. I, all throughout my career, I tell you to a person, the hardest parishioners that we experience are the ones that actually don't come to church or pray or do Bible study, for sure. Look out at people who are acting ugly right now in the world. I promise those people do not have communities that really support them. When I see our members misbehaving out in the world, to a person, those people do not come to church, but they're members. They don't come here, but they're members. And I have to think they're not actually giving themselves up with humility in prayer to allow their painful experiences to shape them closer to God and not farther away from Humility matters because our egos are so strong. All of us in this room, we got them. Those of us watching online, we have those egos, we got them. Part of what hardship does is gives us a chance to allow our egos to get out of the way. And in that humility, return to God because God is calling to us. Yes. So why would we put So why would we put people on a prayer list for healing? Actually because Jesus told us to. I mean the simplicity is Jesus said pray for what you want. And so we pray. And I have absolutely prayed over a person in the hospital who is near death that they would be healed and they die hours later. Absolutely I do. And I would do it again. Because it's not about the outcome. It's not about whether or not the prayer is answered the way I want it to be. It's about the act of prayer. And so we pray and we ask because when we do, we are more and more reinforcing our own spirituality, our own connection to God. And that's the difficulty because in a sense, prayer has become for many people like a magic 
show. You know, if you do it the right way, and you, which is one of the reasons why if you look at us at the altar, I remember I was, I try not to move my hands a lot at the altar at the Eucharist because otherwise it almost feels like it's sleight of hand, like which cup is the calendar, you know? And so I don't want it to feel like that um, or to somehow think that if I don't put my hands in a certain position or move them in a certain way that somehow the Eucharist is not true. Like that's, that's very problematic. So we just put all that down and we do some actions because it's good for us. We're human and we need that kind of thing. So when it comes to praying, you pray for what you want. Absolutely. And when there's a person, when you want to pray for something that seems like a complete lost cause, pray anyway. And even if something doesn't happen, that's not the point of the prayer. That's what I want us to really wrestle with, is we're not praying to make something happen. We are praying in order for us, as a Christian community, to be more and more formed as connected to and dependent on God. Now, if something happens, great. And then the next prayer is, thank you. But what we see here in this little moment in chapter 8 is Moses' response to Pharaoh, he's going to pray. Yes, he will pray for him right now. And it is not dependent on the outcome. And of course, we know the outcome does not happen the way Moses wanted. I do not think Moses regretted his prayer, even though the thing didn't happen the way Moses wanted it to. Because for Moses, prayer is not actually about or based on or dependent on the outcome. Prayer is good itself. I saw one more. Do I see a hand over here? I thought I saw someone. Okay. Last one. Yeah. Well, the outcome, when we do pray, and pray specifically for something, for someone, the outcome is the carrying out of God's will. Um, it's, it's like what Jesus prayed in Gethsemane that to the Father. He says, if it's <laughs> your will, let this cup be removed from me. The cup of suffering is about that. But that yeah. it wasn't answered in that way. But he did say, in any way, to paraphrase a little bit, well, I love that moment in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus because it's it's so human. Jesus says, I don't really want to do this. You know, I get it. I get it. Um, th this is my affect. I imagine Jesus, you know, eye rolls like I get it. Um, but if it could be a, a different way, I'm in, right? Can something else happen? Because that would be great. But again, that will be done. And... This is a hard idea. It's not as if in 10 minutes, all of this makes sense. But we've got, in a sense, thousands of years of people guiding us and influencing us toward this kind of understanding of prayer. And it is, let me just say, if we hear that idea and think that it's totally wrong and we know better, what's that sound like? sounds like ego. So the whole idea of I know better is our greatest temptation. If we can resist the I know better, the I am right, not to sacrifice our identity, but to understand our connection to a community where we mostly don't get our way ever. Yeah, because the better, the higher good here 
is that we all stay together than it is I get my way. And if that's not the challenge of our world right now, I'm not sure what is. And so with that, good luck. <laughs> Go pray. It's good for you. I'll see you all next week. Bye.